if it doesn't happen to you as a crisis immediately, then do you see why you should be taking any action? This is what this whole conversation is about. But this is where we started, right? Which is if you don't see it as a crisis, are you going to do anything about it? And that, that was the whole point of stopping the last part with that question, because you're right. In Flint, Michigan, it is an issue. I never argued stop. The whole argument has never been about stop doing it. The argument has been about figuring out ways to make people see the crisis and using opportunities and policies and things that you can do to focus people on the crisis. And I don't see a lot of that happening in the environmental movie. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. This second conversation with Jamie was enjoyable and challenging. Actually, first, it was different than usual because for whatever reason, we're talking about views on environment, personal action, education, and things like that. But I didn't go into personal challenge, which I do with most guests. It's enjoyable because we're both in it for exchange, education, understanding, things like that. It's challenging because we have to figure out where the other one is. We start this conversation where we ended the last one, which is each putting forward his view. Now, getting to understand another's view takes time, especially while you're trying to make yours available for the other to get and also understand. I would expect that for a third party, not trying to espouse his or her views, you'll probably get and understand both of us faster and easier than either of us got the other. But I think we end up at, well, a nice point that I think will actually be the starting point for our third conversation, which we scheduled. Reaching there, that point where, which will be the starting point, which I think is, well, you'll see where we end up. I think we're going to end up at a, at a point where we really want to get at some details about the other in a way to really understand the other, not just what they're saying, but really where they're going and, and what's, what's driving them. I suspect along the way in this conversation, you'll hear a lot of things that you've heard before. I'm sure that he and I both have heard most of the other's view, but not talked it through with someone who really espouses it and is curious to hear and, and get things to and, you know, reach understanding. In any case, even if I've heard the elements of what he says from others, I've never heard how he assembles it, particularly for himself. So you can hear it too. Here's Jamie. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here again with Jamie Kasap. Jamie, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm very good. And part of me wants to just jump right into where we were last time because we ended... I mean, the closing question was, how critical does a problem have to be for us to act on it, to which I said, you, you asked, which I said, let's start next time. Yeah. It's also a couple of months later. Oh, and I wanted to comment on the tone of the conversation because I've talked to a lot of people who talk about views like yours, and I find that they just want to shut me down. And my read was, it was a, we were curious and inquisitive because education is where we're coming from. And we were, I think we want to learn from each other. I'm very curious. I also want to comment that I'm recording from my home right now. I don't have access to NYU buildings because they're closed. And so if mm-hmm. people hear noise in the background, that's because there's construction outside and there's nothing I can do about that. There's worse problems coming from the, from the pandemic. So I hope we can all handle that. Anything else do you want to start with before we just jump back to where we were? No, I, I think we should just jump back in. I think at the end of the day, we don't have debates anymore. And, and this is an arrogant thing to say, but shutting somebody down is easy, right? Like that's, that's the easy thing. There's, there's lots of ways to shut people down. You can... You can throw them off track. I, you know, I, I was in debate and argumentation in college and high school, and you can shut somebody down. You could 
take them in a different direction. You can control their thoughts. You can do all that. That's that stuff's easy to do. The uh, the harder thing is to actually change your mind, right? Like to change someone's mind is more difficult. And so you can't do that unless you understand what that person is getting at or seeing the world from their point of view. And, and so it changes things if you learn from that other perspective. I'll put it in my words, what you just said, and tell me if it sounds similar enough, that if you want to lead someone, you have to go to where they are, mm-hmm. not where you want them to be, not where you think they should be, not where other people are, but where they are. Right. And the only way to find out is you got to find out. Right. I mean, you can't presuppose that you know. And you'll generally, if you do, you'll probably be wrong. Right. I, one of the questions you were asking last time, I think, was when in history have we seen a big problem and done something about it before the a big problem not yet happened mm-hmm. and done something before it's happened? And I haven't really thought about it too much. And one thing that came to mind when I was re-listening to it was, I have no idea if this is true or not. Someone told me that Japan at one point had almost cut down all its trees. And as they were seeing the last few trees left, we're worried, what if we, if we can't make any, if we don't have any trees, we might not be able to make any boats and we don't have any boats. We might be stuck on this island. And that changed their culture to bring back the trees. And I don't know if this is true or not. I would say that's exactly my point, right? Is that, that they've reached the edge. They reached the like, edge, right? Like they didn't, they didn't stop doing it halfway through their trees. They waited to the last three of them, right? So that's exactly what I'm saying. So the, one of the things that gets me is that if they had cut down the last tree, they might be stuck on that island for a long time. It feels like a lot of things, a lot of mistakes that we've made in the past, it seems like they're reversible to some degree. Whereas this one, it feels to me, if we really, if we don't stop making plastic and we don't stop filling the atmosphere with poisons and and greenhouse emissions, we could have for a long, long time, like just humans, everyone born with birth defects, Mm -hmm. everyone born with lower IQs. It, It feels like, it could be something more permanent, not permanent because if, if I mean, on, on a billionaire time scale, there's very little that's permanent. Right. So I don't think we'd totally lose civilization, but we might never have a clean beach for, for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. And we may never have pulled back from the brink before. I'd like to try. Again, that would just be the new normal. That's my point, right? That, that look what's happening now. We, it's been a couple months since we got together and we went from uh, everyone cooperating with the pandemic and everything being shut down and let's all buckle down and do our part. And then, you know, a couple months into it, like, yeah, you know, it's not that bad. Let's just, let's just go back out and, and do what we want, right? And, and so we, as a country, it wasn't even, here's the problem is that when the leader of the pack is an idiot, then everything is going to be idiotic. And the leader of the pack is America, just the way it is. We're the, the number one economy, the, the richest country, the most powerful country, all those things. And when we're, when we're trying to fix things, when we're, when we're on a path of, you know what, we should have civil rights and we should have women rights and we should have equal rights. And when we're on that path, we're great. But when we're on the path of like, eh, who cares? Then it's just total destruction. It's, you know, it's 10 times the devastation because we're the idiots, right? And so the world basically said, you know, let's shut down. Let's do this right. And look at the, you know, the trend lines in Europe in terms of the pandemic going, peaking and then coming down. And now they have it under control. Well, America's like, yeah, we don't want to do that. 
And look at our trend line. And ours is going back up. The problem is that because ours goes back up, I guarantee you that the rest of the world is going to go back up. It's just going to. And if we don't need it, then this is going to be the new normal. And it's already feels that way. You know, you go out now and you're like, where's my mask? You're like, you don't even comprehend the idea that you have to go outside in a world with a mask on, right? Like the fact that you are walking through Target or Walmart or any grocery store, anywhere that you have to be, and everyone you're walking by has a mask on. Like the idea that that's the world that we live in now, and that's the new normal. That's going to be new normal until we have a vaccine. And even still, then there'll be another thing. So it's this concept that we don't, if, if a global pandemic isn't the edge, what is the edge? Yeah, I mean, people kept, yeah, so many people say to me, we have to hit, we, we really have to hit rock bottom before we do anything. I'm like, look at the pandemic. And I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah, people do seem to reset that way. Although I have to ask now, you're in Arizona yeah. and you say that you walk through stores and everyone's wearing a mask. And I'm in Manhattan and I am, I'd say in Greenwich Village, it's something like 20%, mm-hmm. maybe. All right. It sounds like people are wearing more masks where you are than where I am. Well, I'm, I'm in a very hip, liberal town, right? So I'm in Flagstaff, Arizona. This is a very progressive part of the state. It's, uh, there's money here, right? There, this is a place where uh, Phoenicians have second homes. You know, this is um, more of a progressive kind of place. So you, and, you know, when you go, if, if I went to the dollar store, there's probably nobody wearing a mask. But okay. I, when you go to Sprouts, people are wearing masks. It's just, you know, it's the economy of scale. Okay, so it's locally where you are. It's different yeah. than the state because you guys are in the news a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, where the the cases are are out the window, and and that's because of the fact that we reopened too early. I get my point is that the rock bottom is it. If the pandemic isn't rock bottom, then then what is rock bottom? We just adapt to it, and it's it's more of a of an American culture thing that is put onto the world as opposed to us as society, and that's the problem when you have a globe is that you can't individualize this, right? You can't have one small 4 million person country doing everything they can possibly do about the environment. They can be completely green, 100% renewable energy. They can be completely off the grid. They can, they, you know, every, every, Amer- every dream you want from an environmental perspective can be done by that country and it won't matter. Don't you want to try to... It's not about, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you about trying. I'm just here to drop truth, right? I'm here to tell you how the world is, not how I want the world to be. I'm telling you how the world is and why it's that way. And there, those are two totally different things. It's, it's, I want the world to be in lots of different, I want everyone to be educated. I want everyone to have great careers and great jobs, but you know, that's just not the way the world works. And so understanding the reality of it makes sense. And so Really, what it comes down to, again, we've talked about this before, about the environmental movement. To me, the messages have always been wrong, right? And again, it's not about the beaches because people adapt. You, if you shut down every beach right now and because sand just turns into poison and if you touch sand, you die, right? If that actually happened, let's just say that was the case, people mm-hmm. would be upset for a very long time and then they would forget about it. It would just, that would be the new normal, right? And so I'm saying, how do you adjust to that isn't about saving the beaches. It's about connecting with the people who use beaches, the people who want to use beaches, 
about why it's important to them as individuals to want the beaches as opposed to saving the beaches, if that makes sense. Well, if you see that, so let's say, say that scientists predicted that the beaches were, be, were going to become poisonous. Yeah. And my inclination would be, I'd want to see if I could stop that from happening in the first place. Sure. Again, we talked about this, right? The Looking at things in the macro versus the micro. You keep saying like your inclination. Sure. But you got to look at the world from a herd mentality, right? What would the herd do? What's the herd's inclination? If you live in New Mexico, do you give a, sh- sorry, do, if you live in New Mexico, do you care about beaches? I, I don't, I'm not there. I can't say. There's no beach in New Mexico, right? You don't care about beaches. And, and so it has to be individualized. It has to be about the community. It's about not just telling the community that they should try, but about creating policies that they stand up for, right? So not only are we going to save the beaches, we're going to do these four things. And if you visit us, you can't visit us unless you do these three things. Like whatever that process is, it's about saving that. I, again, it's just, it's, look, I was at the, at the Grand, if you go to my Instagram account, you'll see pictures I took at the Grand Canyon. And I hate the south rim of the Grand Canyon. It's, it's a tourist nightmare most of the time, especially now in the summer. It's the number one tourist spot in the world, in the country at least. And wow. my favorite stat about the Grand Canyon, here, this will give you a mentality thing. The Grand Canyon, one of the most, I would say out of all the places in the world, the Grand Canyon is one of those places that meets the hype. Like people are like, oh my God, the Grand Canyon is this amazing thing. It's just, un- it's, it's the most unbelievable thing you've ever seen. And then you show up the Grand Canyon and it is the most unbelievable thing you've ever seen. It's, have you been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah, it's been a long time. Okay. So the Grand Canyon is this, um, un- and it's not easy to get to, you know, you got to fly into Phoenix and drive for five hours or fly into Flagstaff. It's a small regional airport and drive for two hours. It's, it's not an easy place to go to. And my favorite stat about the Grand Canyon, there's a, a Grand Canyon village, right? A place where, you know, there's hotels and restaurants and uh, gifts and souvenirs and all those things. My favorite stat is that the average Grand Canyon visitor, the average, right? Like the people who come on buses or come in carloads to come see the Grand Canyon just for a day, right? They will spend 60 minutes watching a film, watching an IMAX film about the Grand Canyon in the village. And then spent 18 minutes at the Grand King. My right. favorite stat in the world. I love that stat. Uh-huh. I've been using that stat for 30 years. I love that stat so much. 18 minutes at the Grand Canyon, 60 minutes watching a movie about the Grand Canyon. Right. And so that's the mentality that you're dealing with. And that's where you got to start. Right. But the Grand Canyon. I hate going to the South Rim. I go to the North Rim. You know why I go to the North Rim? Because it takes four hours from Flagstaff to get to the North Rim, where you literally see maybe two cars. There's there's one lodge. It's hard to get to. It's not open in the winter. And I think it's a better view. And, you know, it's quieter. All those things that I love about the North Rim. And I'm actually going in a couple of weeks. But the South Rim has buses and hotels. And it's just this giant tourist thing. A couple of weeks ago, I went and... There's like 10 people there. It, like all the rooms are still, they just had open that weekend. And I only went because my wife had friends over and I wanted to leave, but they just had opened that weekend. They had like 10 people there. And there were times when I was doing astrophotography and I was literally the only person at the Grand Canyon, right? On the South Rim this time. On the South Rim. And, uh-huh. and I only went again because I, I needed to get out of the house for a couple of days because my wife had friends over. 
And she ended, they ended up not coming. She came with me. She hiked down to the, to the bottom and hiked back up, which is an insane thing to do. But we went and it was, the pollution wasn't there. The people weren't there. It was, it was just absolutely beautiful. It would be great to maintain the Grand Canyon like that, right? Where it's clear and you can't see pollution because of the fact that there aren't as many cars and factories aren't cranking out things like they used to. It'd be great if only like 10 people at a time were at the Grand Canyon, but you can't do that, right? You can't, how do you do that? If anybody cares about these subjects, they need to sit down and figure out how do you deal with that herd mentality? How do you deal with the economic indicators of how something needs to be run? And then how do you create policies and things around that so that you can take care of it? And the problem is what ends up happening is you grow a bigger economic gap because one strategy would be, okay, so let's make all the hotel rooms at the Grand Canyon at the South Rim $1,000 a night, right? Now, all of a sudden, you eliminate a lot of people who can't go. So you've lowered the number of people who can go, but you've also gave an advantage to people who have money versus people who the average consumer who you know makes $55,000 a year who can't afford a $1,000 a night hotel room or $3,000 a night, whatever number you need to get to so that people less people go to the place. So that it works, right? Cigarettes, we cut down smoking because we tax cigarettes at three, 400%. And people who can afford to smoke, smoked, and people who couldn't have to stop because they couldn't buy cigarettes anymore, but it stopped smoking. So there are these strategies, these balances of things that you have to look through. You said a lot, so I'm not sure I, I can't comment on everything. Right. I mean, one of the things you said was that that's the way things are, but then you, then you, the next thing you said was, if someone wants to affect that, here's what they have to think about. Mm-hmm. That makes it sound like you do expect that some people, there, are, there is a chance of making a difference. Through policy and action. Or is it different? I mean, one way of doing things is, is with this tiered pricing. That's not the only way. Or you're saying that that's the only thing, that's the only... No, no. What I'm, say, what I'm saying is that if you, if you turn to people and say, listen, everybody, the Grand Canyon is great, but it's amazing if there's no pollution there. And if we can limit the number of cars and people. So everyone's going to, you know, we're going to take turns, right? Everyone has to care about this versus creating policies and actions that actually stop people from doing it. You see the difference? The difference is to your point about like, oh, I care about the environment. So I'm going to voluntarily not go this summer so that someone else can go and we'll, we'll create a tiering system where we'll take turns. That's just not going to happen. So you need to create the policies and the actions. When I hear someone say, this is the way things are, I'm prepped to hear what I hear when they say that is this is my, the mental model under which I'm working. It may be true. It may be accurate, but that's not the only way of looking at things. And it leads you to certain behaviors and you'll confirm the bias. Sure. Not you, but everyone, we all do It's how yeah. we work. No, I told, I totally understand. I, I, my, it's not about, this is the way things are. I say the things that I say from my experiences and from observing the world and from understanding how stuff works. And, you know, I tell people, I don't know how old you are. How old are you? I'll turn 49 in, let's say, the 8th, so in a couple of weeks. Right. So you're, you're old like me. And I tell people all the time, the, the, your 30s are cool. Your 40s are good. Your 50s are amazing. Because when you're in your 50s, you're, you figure everything out. Like, you walk into a meeting and you know exactly how that meeting is going to go. You know exactly what the person is going to say. You know exactly what the outcome is. You walk into any situation and you know exactly what's going to happen because you have 50 years of pattern recognition, especially if you're paying attention. Most people don't pay attention. 
And so if you can, if you're paying attention and you're an observant person and you can see things and you use evidence and you use data and you do these things, you can see how things are going to. And so very rarely are you surprised by something, right? And that's what's great about sports is because every, there could be a surprise at any point. In life, when you're in your 50s, there aren't really that many more surprises. You kind of have figured the whole thing out. So that's where it comes from. I'm not a 20-year-old telling you that this is the way things are based on some book I read. This is life. And so I am saying that based on that, what works, again, the pandemic is a perfect example. What, what mentality do you have to have to say that, eh, it's okay if some people die? It's a, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out and get a drink. It's okay. Look, I'm young. I'm, you justify it. Like I can, I knew that I, two months ago, I told, I, I sat at my dinner table and told people that this was exactly what was going to happen. So let's go, let's go to education. Yeah. You are an evangelist yeah. on education. Yeah. Why do you do what you do? If, I mean, what you're saying, if I read you right, it would imply why bother trying to change education? No, that's not what I'm saying. No, Ed- education. It depends on what you, how you define education. Education helps you see the world. Education helps you understand those patterns. You can, I'm not saying you can't change things. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that the approach to changing things is different for me than it is for other people. The approach that you take is different, right? So, saying, so me, when, I, when I'm talking about pattern recognition, I'm saying that going to people and saying to them, you, you need to do this because it's good for the Grand Canyon isn't going to work. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no one's saying that. Well, at least I'm not. No, but there are people who put up posters that say, save the Grand Canyon. There are people who put up posters that say, you know, let's pollute less. It's just, that doesn't work, right? What works- Yeah, let's take off the table doing ineffective things. I don't want to propose any ineffective right. things. Right, okay. I mean, so- You got experiment. No, no, I, I, I totally understand that. So it, it, then what does work, right? And so th- I'm not saying that things don't work. I'm saying that understanding patterns and recognition and how things work helps you develop things that do work, right? And so, for example, let's take education. Right now, we're going through this, this massive change in education. And I think that this is an amazing opportunity. We've done education the same way for 150 years. And for the most part, it served us very well right? We created a superpower of a nation with the education system that we have. It didn't serve everyone. It served the people it wanted to serve. Now, through this pandemic, we can see that there are issues around equity. We can see that there's issues around social justice. We can see that there are issues around skills that we really need to develop. So this is an opportunity to take advantage of. So that's, that's the difference, right? The difference is this is the opportunity. Now, let's use this to change things. Well, this sounds, I, I'm hearing, I must be missing something yeah. because what I'm hearing when you're talking about the environment is we'll adjust to the new norm and you just got to get that this is the way the herd works and we, we can't do anything about right. it. We can try, but most things won't really work. But on education, this is a tremendous opportunity, something that didn't work for a while or something that worked for a while doesn't work. It's a tremendous opportunity to change that. But that's my point. The crisis moment in education is here, right? The fact that we have a 20 million person unemployment rate is a crisis. The fact that we we're not teaching the skills that people need that we're that we're recognizing, people are recognizing that we're not teaching the skills is a crisis. The fact that we're recognizing that doing standardized testing that that all of a sudden, well, why are we doing that? That doesn't make sense. 
we're recognizing these things. So in the environmental movement, where are those recognition points? Where are those? That's what I'm getting at. What are those recognition points in education, in, in the environment where people are like, oh yeah, that is terrible. We need to fix that. We, the crisis elements are different. Does that make sense? Well, I, I understand what you're saying, but I think there's a lot of people who look at education and say, well, we'll just adjust. Sure. I mean, the, one could easily just say, well, you think those are crisis things. Sure. But a lot of people don't. And the more and the longer, I mean, we could have said that the crisis was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, because there was just as many signs then. Yeah. But you yourself personally read that the crisis is now. And so you yourself personally are acting. That's what I'm reading. Yeah. And no. you expect you expect to bring about a change that others that absent you wouldn't happen. I'm using the crises as the experience that people feel to bring about change. In the environmental movement, what are the crisis points that you can use to bring about change? Well, I'm not going to answer that because I know that whatever I say, you can say, well, that's not really a crisis. Whereas I could just as easily say what you're saying are crises in education aren't really, to you, they seem like crises, but they're not to anyone else. Right. And so here's the difference for me is that I recognize that and I'm not going to go try to convince people that don't want to be convinced. The president of the United States yesterday said that all K-12 schools should open up. Everything's normal. And there are people who are going to look at that and be like, yeah, absolutely. Everything's normal. We should just go back to the traditional way. I'm not going to go work with them. All right. I got to pick it. I'm not trying to convince anyone. And I don't propose anyone to try to convince anyone. Convince to me is a synonym for provoke argument, provoke right. debate. That's not what I'm talking about. And if you're talking about, we should go out, like if you're saying we should not try to convince people to do stuff, I'm with you 100%, but right. not because there's not a crisis, but because that, is, that will only entrench people. Okay, this is, no, no. So, so let me finish the thought because it'll make more sense. So as convinced maybe not, I'm not going to go work with those people. I'm not, you know, I have my, I have all this free time now. I'm not going to go work with people that like, yeah, no, the president's right. We should go back to opening schools and doing this traditionally. I can go focus on people like that, see the crisis and say, yeah, we need to fix these things. We need to do these other things. And that's what I'm doing. I'm working with universities and K-12 systems. as I know we need to rethink everything that we do in education, help us do that. So I'm working with people that want to change. The difference is that if you start working with the people that want to change and do things differently in education, other people might will see that and see the success and see where, where the skills are being developed and how those students are succeeding and doing well. That's the potential that you have by working with the people that want to change. I don't know the environmental movement, but what is the environmental movement equivalent of that? That's if you just take out the word education, put in environment, what you said is exactly what I see happening. Okay, right. And it's happening very slowly. I don't know if we'll be able to turn the corner in time. Right. But there's a lot of people. To me, leadership means helping people do what they wanted to do, but haven't figured out how. Sure. There's a ton of people. I think virtually, I think, I don't know the number, but I think a lot of people, they want to pollute less. They want to do things differently. That's why the last thing, the last public appearance I had before the virus, uh, before the pandemic hit, was I went up to the Bronx. I was invited to go show how I make my famous no-packaging vegetable stews. Yeah. And I was invited by a single mom in a food desert, exactly the type of person that everyone tells me, Josh, you don't understand. Yeah, I remember you telling that story. Right. And they said, this is a way out. This is a way we can get rid of the, like McDonald's, they're not saving us time and money. They're sapping our time and money, but we can't do anything about it. But now we see at least a start for a way out. I would love for that to lead to, you know, if they buy a bit more vegetables, a few more farmer's markets will show up there. 
few more farmers markets, a few more people learn how to cook that way. Then you start like the culture starts shifting. I could see that happening. That's like environmental change. I completely agree. The, the, the question then is become, it becomes a time of scale, right? Like at what point do that, does that action change things? Where in the education space, I can pick a school, go work directly with that school. And a couple of years later, now you have students who are not only succeeding in life, you can see the results and those individual lives are being affected and impacted. What's that in the, in the environmental movement? What's the scale? At what point doing that enough gets you to change the corner on what is clearly a crisis? So are you really asking that open-ended or? Because I feel like- Yeah, no, I'm asking. Yeah, I'm asking. What's the scale? I'll tell you that in my experience, there's a group I was working with, a very well-known group. And for a long time, they were like, look, our business is about traveling places. Yeah. And we have to do that. And I was like, can we at least have a conversation about not flying? And they're like, non-starter, non-starter. Then Greta sailed across the ocean. They're like, they're like, let's have that conversation. Then the pandemic and that changed things. But one person doing something in that case led to a whole, a very, I'm not going to name them, but you know, everyone knows this organization. They're mm-hmm. like, let's talk. My stuff, everyone looks at what I do and they think I'm pushing individual action, but I'm not. I'm pushing learning, not pushing, but you know, I'm promoting learning skills. Mm-hmm. And that's why when people ask me to come into their companies in, in major corporations and government, they know what's the, in the front page of the paper. What they don't know is how to implement, how to sure. do, how to deal with what happens when someone says, what you, what you do isn't going to matter and stuff like that. The same stuff as how to start a habit, you know, going to the gym or diet or sure. smoking or something like that. People don't know that, but I do from having done this. One of the stories I talk about is one of my clients, this Exxon guy, he was, I mean, he had a PhD in, in geophysics and he was, being, he was moving over into management. So hired me as a guy with science background uh, who coaches leadership. And we would chat a little bit before and after our official coaching began and ended, just we became friends. I would talk to him about how it'd take me three months, six months to fill up a load of garbage. And one time he said, hey, Josh, it took me three months or something like that to fill up a load of garbage. That wasn't part of our coaching. That was just a friendly conversation. He did it on his own. Mm -hmm. A couple months after that, he said, hey, Josh, the less garbage at home, that taught me skills. I'm using them at work. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't talking about using work to make less garbage at work. Mm -hmm. Those skills to make decisions that affected all of Latin America on a business level. Sure. So these are a few things from my life. But- I believe that this is happening a lot. I mean, last time I talked about Machai Virvadia, who was, he was the one who was a major person in Thailand going from something like seven, seven and a half children per woman down to one and a half children per woman. The opposite of the one child policy, no forced sterilization, no forced abortion, no tearing your house down if you have two kids. It's like having a superhero character as a mascot, giving, putting condoms out all over the places before the AIDS crisis. So condoms were kind of, not mainstream like they are today, and education all over the place, making contraception available all yeah. over the place. And it was it was a fun thing. I mean, literally like fun, like having teaching kids like blowing blowing up like balloons so they just become normal. Sure, that happened on a national scale, and other nations as well. And if that were to happen on a regional or, or global scale, a few generations, one and a half children per per woman, a couple generations were down to a sustainable level. Like we're not in overshoot. Sure. I think, you know, what Al Gore had a prediction that we would, you know, run out of space in, I think, this year, right? Like, we're supposed to be at, what is it, 12 billion people, whatever it was, and, and we never reached that number because of a lot of those types of things that happened over the last 20 years, types of policies. Yes, everything that you just said is absolutely true. 
all these little actions, all these actions at a regional level, at a local level, at a global level, totally make sense. The difference is when I when I build a school in Phoenix, and four years later we have our first graduating class of 100 seniors that now are educated differently, that are going out into the world differently, that are going to be successful because of this program. The economics of scale don't matter. Where in the environmental movement, and this is the the what I'm getting at is. Uh, where's the ceiling, right? Like we could do this over generations. If we had 200 years to do these things, everything would be fine. But my understanding is that we are at a crisis point in lots of different areas. And whatever actions we take might not make it in time, right? Is that my understanding of what's going on in the world? Yeah. I mean, my read is that I believe that we've crossed so many thresholds that with probably within, almost certainly within my lifetime, there are going to be major problems on the scale of like deaths and cultures all messed up and wars over resources. But I think when people are new to a field, any person new to any field, they tend to see only broad strokes, black and white. And they think, well, if we haven't averted the disaster, there's going to be disaster. But there, when you're in the field, you see nuances and there are degrees of disaster. We could have a billion climate refugees. We could have two billion climate refugees. That's a billion people affected. Mm-hmm. What we do today can differentiate between scale of disaster. Mm-hmm. I don't see that it's, if we can't fix everything, that, then it's not worth fixing anything. No, and I'm not saying that. I'm saying how long, you know, if, if we say things like, and I've heard, say, I've heard predictions, we have 20 years left before the world blows up or whatever, right? Or we have- not, You always say that. It's, it's not, there's nothing, no one's saying the world is going to blow up. I, there's nothing about- okay, I'm exaggerating, but my, my point is I've seen those articles. Scientists warn us, if we don't take action now in 20 years, we're not going to have any more food, right? Like you see those articles. What I've seen is saying that if we don't take action now, then within like 10, 12 years, it will be irrevocable. But that, that doesn't mean that it's going to happen then. It means that if we don't act in time by then, then- the wheels are in motion and we can't stop it from happening. Right. But that's not the same as it happening then. Now, if that's the case, are the actions that we're taking in the environmental movement now going to stop us from that happening? I would say, is can I make a difference myself? And is it worth my time to do that versus other things that I could do? Okay. Can I solve everything? I don't believe everyone can solve everything. Certainly for me on a personal scale, right. I believe it, it makes sense to make it my top priority. Sure. And, and that's an individual choice, but that doesn't answer the question as to whether or not the actions that we take, are, is that going to prevent the damage of not being able to, to get to the point of not coming back? It will. Everything that everyone does today has an effect on everyone else. Yes. And that right there tells me, and okay, so then what's the scale of, of that? The other thing is, what if the actions that I do improve my life. Why wouldn't I do them anyway? Sure. I mean, if it's a burden or a chore, then I wouldn't want to do it. But what if actually what I'm doing that causes the problem is actually messing up my own life and I stop doing those things, then it's not an issue of like, should I do this or not? Of course I win. Everyone wins. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people doing stuff that is like, I don't have to point out the amount of addiction in this country, for example, or the depression and so forth. We're not living such happy lives all of us right now. Sure. And I think a lot of that is coming from this entitlement to just wanting anything we want whenever we want. I mean, certainly for me, avoiding packaged food 
has led to meeting a lot more fresh fruits and vegetables, which leads me to meeting my farmers, which leads me to getting food in season. So I don't get to eat berries 12 months out of the year. But when I get them, they're so delicious mm-hmm. and they're cheaper. And I'm helping a local farmer and I'm not polluting to have them shipped all over the world in the plastic packaging and so forth. Sure. And before I acted, I thought to act would mean, oh, it's a burden. It's a chore. I don't want to do it. I have to. But now I think I can't wait for the next thing to find. Mm-hmm. And this is a very different picture than what you're presenting. But this is an end of, you're talking about actions at an individual level, right? So my, my, uh, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. I am, I mean, I am talking about that, but I'm saying, I believe that there's a model driving you and you know better than I do. I'm not you. Mm-hmm. It says that doing this is something, it's a distraction. I don't really want to do it. We have to. And I had that view too, before I started acting. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm pointing about individual action is the same thing about learning experientially. Project-based learning is as opposed to reading about stuff. Right. When you actually do it, you learn something different. And I believe that that is available to everyone, that I believe most Americans could probably reduce their emissions and waste by something like 80, 90%, just with life improvements that mm-hmm. they think are not life improvements, but after they do them, they'll be like, oh, why didn't I do that before? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not, it's a very different idea than this is helping people do what they wanted to do already, but didn't know how. This is not convincing them. It's not trying to get them to do something they don't want to do. Sure. And I think that's, I think we're mostly polluting, not because we want to, but just we have the system that makes it comfortable and convenient. But that's not necessarily what makes that what people look back on and say that was a good life about or gives people meaning or purpose. Absolutely. Again, and maybe you're not talking about an individual level in the time that you just talked, because I can see out my window here in the time that you just talked, I watched 30 truck trucks go by, right? Full of crap full of shit that people don't need, full of things mm-hmm. that are packaged and processed and all those things. Like the scale of the change that needs to happen isn't at, to me anyway, at, at a level where an individual feels good. My wife ran a nonprofit a couple of years ago called New Global Citizens. And the whole point of the nonprofit was to get rid of the individual feeling good about themselves. And what, let me give you, an, I'm exaggerating, but let me give you an example. Oftentimes you have Americans teenagers, usually a church group, they want to do something good, whether it's for the environment or for people or for starving children in Africa. And they all put on, they all do a bake sale and they, they raise funds and they put on their yellow or pink t-shirts and they fly to Africa because they're going to build a new school. And they're, and they, they go and they spend a month there and they learn about culture and about themselves and they learn and they feel great building a school and they build a school and they leave and they wave at the people and they, they, had, they take all these memories and pictures and they come back to the United States and look how great we are. Look how wonderful we, the great things that we did. And the whole thing is the worst thing that you can do. The whole experience is the worst thing that you can do for Africa, right? And so that's my fear when people do individual things. They might feel good about themselves. And I'm not saying that what you're saying doesn't, but in this case, Global sustainable development isn't about people packing up on airplanes and flying to Africa because while those people are flying to Africa and now they are, they're there working, there's 12 Africans sitting on the side there who now don't have a job because these people came from California and now they're building the school and these 12 Africans don't have the job. Then they leave 
without any teacher being available for the school. So that building sits there quietly, but they feel great about themselves, but nothing has changed. That's my fear in all of this. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Yeah, leading, it's, I look for role models in leadership. And, you know, one area of leadership is sports. And, you know, it's great to see the halftime speech when the team is down and you're like, we got to get back in there and win this thing. And it can be very rousing. If the team wins, that's great. If a team loses, that's too bad. Leading when there's a scientific basis, when they're repeatable experiments is a very different story. It's not just like, it's my opinion that I want to win this one. So I have to be humble with the science. I have to be humble with what works and look at measurable effects. Mm -hmm. So I don't look at like just what makes people feel good. It has to be based on. Yeah, I'm not saying you are, but that's my problem, you know, with religion. If you go sit in a church for any amount of time and you listen to what, what's the reward? What's the reward of playing the game? And the reward is never about like, you're just going to make other people feel great. You're just going to, you're going to help the world. The reward is always, you're going to get into this heaven place and you're going to live for eternity. You're going to be happy in, in the afterlife. Like it's all about the individual person and how they feel, right? Like that whole setup is based on that. Okay. I can't speak to that. I mean, uh, I've, I had a religious upbringing, but I'm not particularly religious now. Right. Now I have to say, okay, I've been working within your 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 view here. Yeah, yeah. I want to give you my view. Okay, let's do it. So total shift here, and we don't sure. really have a lot of time, but no, we got um, we got thirteen minutes. Go for it. We all grew up, especially us at our age. I think you got a couple of years on me, but not too many. Yeah, we grew up in a with with a system that was based on certain values from a long time ago. That you know we couldn't possibly fill the Pacific with plastic. That um, uh, you know flying around was not a big deal, and and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the Earth has changed in our lifetimes. It's literally changed in that there's a lot more CO2 in the atmosphere. There's a lot more mercury in the, in the groundwater. Sure. There's, you know, and it's changed. Also, our understanding of it has changed. We've done research. We've done predictions. We've modeled the future. And so our understanding of it has changed. Mm-hmm. And most of us haven't really changed with it. We, we still live under the beliefs that we grew up under. So you know, my parents could fly around without a second thought. Well, I would like to fly around without a second thought too. And I think what I think a way that the mind works is that when we want to do something and we're torn about whether we should do it or not, the mind looks for, is there a way that I can do this and be, and be okay with that? Mm-hmm. It's not, this is not a logical process. This is just what we do to, to rationalize what we want to do. So we walk into Starbucks, we know that they're going to give us a plastic cup and we say, oh man, I'm going to drink this thing for like a minute or two and the plastic cup is going to be for 500 years. Should I really do this? We look around. Oh, everyone else is doing it. Well, I guess everyone else is doing it. It's probably okay. That's enough reason. And we move ahead based on that. Then we justify it. And the more that we have this challenge to ourselves, we reinforce and reinforce and reinforce this belief in our head. And that becomes, in our minds, that is why it's okay to do whatever the thing is, 
even if we know in some other part of our mind that it's going to be hurting people or, or that in some other situation, we, we, we would not do it. And then that becomes our, our new model for the world is this is okay. And we might say, oh, I really shouldn't. But in our heads, we think everyone else is doing it. It's okay. Or what I do doesn't matter. So it's okay. Or really until governments and corporations act, then what I do doesn't matter. And we operate under that. And that becomes our model for the world. Mm-hmm. And, but it's just what we said to justify that. If we, we don't have to do it that, it doesn't have to happen that way. I say this because, and when you have an experience that forces you to, that, that is different than that, then it forces you to rethink your beliefs. But I, I think if you don't actually have that experience, you generally won't change those beliefs. What I'm hearing from you is that you have a certain set of beliefs that allow you to justify continuing to behave as, you, as you've behaved. Mm-hmm. You have a view that says the environment is a certain way. There's a certain limitation on what I can do about it or what anyone can do about it. Different limitations for what you do for, versus others. But basically, I hear you justifying continuing doing what you've been doing. Right. So if I engage you in debating on those things, that will tend to reinforce, in your mind, you've already won the debate because you have a model in your head. And if I challenge you on that, then you will, the mind works that you will say, you'll push back. And the debate in your head, you're the winner. You're going to win that one. Yeah, I think we're talking about apples and oranges. And the reason why is because here's an example. Let me ask you this. What you're, you're a big thing about not flying, right? You're, this is an area that you're concerned in. This is an area that you want to do more work in, right? Yeah. Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what have you done to take advantage again, like the crisis of the opportunity that we have in front of us right now? Like what actions have you taken? Because I think there was huge opportunity to do something about it right now. For example, someone like me, who travels two, 300,000 miles a year, hasn't been on an airplane since February 25th, maybe 20, February 24th. What a great opportunity to target people like me and people in my space, not about, hey, you, you haven't traveled and look how much better the world is because of, like, it's important for you not to travel because it helps the environment, but instead... Focus on the needs of the individual, right? Like, hey, you haven't traveled since February 20th. Don't you feel better? Don't you feel healthier? Don't you feel like you have more connection with your kids? Don't you like, like what? There's a whole policy action that we can take here that I haven't seen anybody. No one's reached out to me about this. Yeah. Okay. Are you asking me personally? No, not just you, you, the world of the the, the environmental movement. So in terms of what I do personally, I have a strategy that I'm sticking with and the pandemic affects the strategy, but I'm still sticking with my strategy. When I talk to people, there's a lot of people who've come to me and over the course of years, when I would talk about not flying, they would say, oh, you could do that, but I can't. There's nothing I can do. I must fly. It's impossible for me not to fly. And when I talk to them, I point out, you remember how you said it was impossible? Was it really impossible? And they're like, sure, I guess not. I didn't see a way for me to get my voice out there to hammer that, to get that out to a lot of people enough to switch from the strategy that I'm doing with my podcast and the TV show that's coming up and so forth. So, I personally haven't done that except when it comes to me. I think that would be a great message to get out there. But, and I support this like Flight for USA, and there's there's several groups that are working on this. Sure. But I wouldn't follow the strategies that you were suggesting or the tactics that you were suggesting because I want to work on the belief that said that flying was necessary and say it's not necessary. It's a choice. Well, that's part of the argument as well, right? That's part of the that's part of the argument as well. Look, you hey, look over the last three months, have you? 
stopped working? Have you not been able to have the meetings that you've had? Have you not been able to present at conferences and events? Have you had more time with your kids? Don't you feel healthier? Look, man, I'm doing the best that I can, but I'm, I can't do everything and nor can everyone I do I get everything. it. No, I get it. That, and I'm not talking about you as an individual. I'm talking about the movement as a whole. I know. I'm also talking about that. It seems to me that your approach to education, if you took that same approach to the environment, you would dramatically, you'd, you wouldn't be asking the same questions. You wouldn't be doing the same things. But, and the difference is not in the level of crisis in the environment versus the level of crisis in, the, in education. It's your personal perspective on these things that you're choosing, whether consciously or not, to look at education as something where we're, the crisis is at a certain level and people are ready to act, whereas in the environment it's not. But you could just as easily look at it the other way around or, or look at both of them the same way. Sure, but that's my lens. And and I would say that I look at things in terms of as something as, as simple, and it's not even that scientific anymore, but as the Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? Like education has a direct impact at the very bottom. If you don't have a great job, you cannot provide food, right? You cannot provide shelter, basic. So I can target that and get to people's emotions through that, right? Which is you need an education so that you can support your family. You need an education so that you can thrive. You need an education so that you don't live on the street. That's the target. That's the market. That's the place to focus on. In the environmental movement, where would you say it fits on the Maslow hierarchy needs? Some environmentalists would argue it's ba- at the basic. Like if we don't solve this problem, we can't take care of basic needs. I'm saying that most people can't make that connection as easy as you can make it in the education space. Yeah, I think that here, I mean, I, Flint, Michigan. Yeah. Which is more important to someone in Flint, Michigan, their water or their education? Yes, great point. So mostly in America, we look at pollution as, you know, there's a candy wrapper on the ground. We got a little cough. Maybe a few more people have asthma. Indonesia, the Philippines, the place where we're shipping all our plastic. It's, I mean, just plastic is one thing. It's like, it's, I just saw this movie, The Story of Plastic, and I, you, we've all seen the images of beaches covered with plastic. Mm-hmm. You know, there was once when I saw the first image of that, I thought I was shocked. And then now that's a normal image, right? You see pictures of Bali, you see places that were once heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. And they're, well, I thought I was prepared and I was not. The pollution in other places, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's, our picture of it is just off. It's not on the charts of what the rest of the world sees. And, and you know, not, that, it's not that far from us. I mean, the, the amount of just looking at just plastic, forget about mm-hmm. dioxins and PCBs and PFAS, mm-hmm. and we're making more. I mean, it's exponential growth. I think it's exponential growth in the amount of plastic they're making. The fracking is making it cheaper than ever. Right. And, you know, China stopped accepting it. And the other places are stopping accepting it. It's going to back up to us really quickly. Mm-hmm. And one of the beautiful things about science is it allows us to predict the future and whether we like it or not and whether we know right. about it or not. Right. Coming to us, like it's going to be very soon... I don't want to get into that area. My point is just that there are places in the world where what you said, they would say, education is nice, but we're getting cancer, you know, in their twenties mm-hmm. and we're sterile and our kids are born with birth defects. Yeah. And environmental is like huge. For them. Absolutely. It, but why haven't we solved Flint, Michigan? I'm working on it. I mean, as a, as a, as a, I, I can't tell you that. It's been years. It's been years. As a country, we've accepted Flint, Michigan. We've accepted there's a community in our country that lives like a third world country. I, I'm not sure if you're saying that because there's a problem that is unsolved that we shouldn't work on it. No, no. I'm, I'm saying that I, to your point, which is if it doesn't happen to you as a crisis immediately, 
then do you see why you should be taking any action? That's what I'm, this is what this whole conversation is about, right? This is what we, it's a good place to kind of finish because we only got a couple minutes left, but this is where we started, right? Which is if you don't see it as a crisis, are you going to do anything about it? And that, that was the whole point of stopping the last part with that question, because you're right. In Flint, Michigan, it is an issue. To my view, you have described the, the playing field that I've chosen to enter. Yeah, there's a problem that people don't agree is a problem. But I think that if they, if they how do I put this? I don't want to sound too condescending, but we have a nation that's not invested in science education for, for decades. Sure. And I don't think that we're particularly scientifically literate. But if we we're, were... I said, I said at some point, we're idiots. So I think that people do, would want to change if they got it more. I don't want to force them into that, but I want to help them see that if, for those who are willing. And, and those who have seen it, I want to help them do something about it. And yeah, right. you, what you've described is the problem. That is the problem. People don't yeah. see the crisis, but I don't think that means stop. I think that means- I, didn't, I never argued stop. The whole argument has never been about stop doing it. The argument has been about figuring out ways to make people see the crisis and using opportunities and policies and things that you can do to, to focus people on the crisis. And I don't see a lot of that happening in the environmental movie. We had this conversation last time. So let's start next time with, with that, if you're game for next time. Sure. Okay, so um, I'll stop recording now and then we'll schedule next time and we'll pick up there. All right, sounds good. Okay, so Jamie Kasap, thank you very much. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Most of the conversation, I felt like he was asking what people were doing on the environment to point out its futility. So I was kind of being defensive in how I responded. You probably picked up on that. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But at the close, I thought he was actually asking to hear what strategies could there be if people don't really want to act or people don't think that there's a crisis. To me, that's the playing field that I'm entering is how do you do that? And I think I've come up with some good answers. I think he hasn't imagined or proposed or been proposed a strategy that might work. So he's actually curious and hasn't seen something that could, whereas in education, I think he really has. So I don't know if mine, the strategies that I'm working on will. Actually, I don't think that my strategies will work if working means averting all disaster or even disasters beyond the scales of what we've seen before, like world wars. I think if I did everything I could imagine, I think we're still going to hit disasters like that. But as I said, there are scales of disaster and we can avoid yet worse ones. Actually, I think that everything that I do, that that all of us do, can decrease suffering for others and that we prefer to live a life of stewardship. Anyway, I think that we'll start next time with talking strategy. That's in a month. See you then. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.